Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Well, I think it isn't the plan to like, it's like to like reverse Voltron, this bill. Oh, isn't a reverse Voltron just also a Voltron? Well, like in Voltron, they would fight as separate entities, lose, and then combine into the uh, big okay, package gotcha. and win. I think this is more, they're going to do the big package. It's... Lose and then separate it out yeah. into yes. individual Voltrons. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Dara Lind and Jane Coaston. And today, um, we want to take a break from talking about Donald Trump, presidential campaigns, and talk about what uh, the newly installed majority of House Democrats uh, wants to do. Uh, We have heard a lot over the past month about how they do not want to finance a border wall. Um, That's been the subject of a a lot of drama. Um, But they actually have a legislative agenda of their own. And it's it's kind of different from what the presidential candidates are talking about. Um, Although, you know, I I don't think presidential candidates disagree with it exactly, but it's a but it's a different agenda. Um, they have a bill. They they name it HR one. That's a way of showing it's your your top priority. Every new Congress sort of does that. They pick something to be their thing. Um, and what they have here, it's a well, it's big. I think the best way to kind of talk about it as a top line is that it's a bunch of small d democracy kind of reforms. Yes. Um, the you know, the liberal model of what a more participatory federal election system would look like. Um, so there's stuff in here, some campaign finance stuff, both requiring, quote unquote, dark money groups to disclose their donors and offering a much more robust public financing model for uh congressional campaigns. There's some voting reform stuff in here, like implementing automatic voter registration and uh, making Election Day a federal holiday. And there's some ethics stuff, uh, including making the Office of uh, Government Ethics a much more robust entity within the executive branch, requiring the Supreme Court to have a code of ethics. It's a bunch of different policy issues that make sense if you're thinking about it from the perspective of what have Democrats at the national level felt is missing from, you know, the federal government that makes it difficult for people to have their voices heard in the process. Yeah. So let's go full full laundry list. Okay. Uh, they've got a big small donor matching thing. Um, so you would get a six to one match for 
contributions under $200. Um, so this would greatly increase the significance of small donors in the political system, greatly um, increase the clout of politicians who appeal to an online donor base, um, and conversely, somewhat reduce the clout of traditional bundlers um, who bring in donations in increments of, of tens of thousands of dollars. Second, they sit, call for a constitutional amendment to end Citizens United. This is something Democrats say. It doesn't really mean anything um, as far as I can tell. And, and it's actually interesting that they, they pick that because that is actually picking a relatively a constitutional amendment is a very high bar, and then once you're trying to amend the Constitution, reversing the Citizens United ruling is actually a small change. Mm -hmm. um, you could, in theory, you could go way back to the '70s line of decisions, which say that campaign contributions are a form of speech and can't really be regulated. Um, but so they're sort of not actually going after the clout of big donors, except insofar as they are increasing the cloud of small donors. So then they have uh, a Disclose Act. This is a, a bill uh, that's been kicking around. It would uh, basically tighten up the disclosure loopholes that have led to super PACs and dark money groups who, whose donors we don't know about. Uh, there's the Honest Ads Act, which is in there, and it would require uh, Facebook and Twitter and other online social platforms to basically say who is paying for, for different ads. So you can't do false flag stuff uh, online. Um, they want to make government contractors disclose what political spending they do, tighten up some of the screws on how foreign money uh, can flow through shell corporations uh, to, to to come into electioneering. Uh, they want to change the Federal Election Commission. Right now, the FEC is structured to have two Democratic commissioners and two Republican commissioners. It's it's structured to have three and three. It's just oh. that it currently has two and two. Even better. Uh, so right now, it's structured to be even. And so what happens in practice is nothing happens. Uh, they're going to make it more like the SEC uh, or some other commissions that have an odd number of commissioners so that basically the president's party uh, controls the commission. Um, and then, I don't know, you, you could see that go in different ways, but it's in their bill. Yeah, it's one of those things that, like, you know, former FEC commissioners of both parties have said that it would be a good idea. But, of course, when each of them says that, you can assume that they have their own ideas about what they would have liked to accomplish. I think it's fair to say that it would Im increase the uh, volatility of the Federal Election Commission. And I guess the salience, right? I mean, because I think the idea would be, look, Republican commissions could change the rules, too, but they would have to, like— overtly change the rules instead of just a series of deadlocks and, and inattention. Um, they would also try to tighten the rules on coordination between candidates and super PACs. Uh, there was like a very funny thing from the last cycle where a whole bunch of donors to the House Republican Super PAC were sort of brought together in a theater. Paul Ryan gave a big speech, and then he departed the stage and left the building. And yep. then the aide comes out and is like, hey, can you guys... Give right. us some money. Because um, he, he wasn't allowed to be – and that, that happened multiple times of Paul Ryan like going to like say California to right. meet with donors and then having to leave while the actual donation took place. Yes. And of course – I mean and, and he's not the only one. I mean, right. Those, those are the rules of the game. So the idea would be to try to increase the – actual distancing there. Um, then they had their ethics package. Uh, so this would require the president and vice president to disclose 10 years worth of tax returns. Candidates for president and vice president would also have to do it. And that's something I think is interesting because we said we wanted to kind of step away from Donald Trump, but it yeah. is impossible to have a conversation about the ethics of tax returns without recognizing that a lot of this is in response not just to 
Trump himself, but kind of to the Trump campaign and kind of the milieu in which the Trump campaign operated. Yes. And so it, it's interesting to see this being parsed out as kind of like a forward looking package of ideas, while it is also inherently backwards looking also. Yeah. I don't know. I, I almost feel like the tax return thing is kind of the exception here rather than the rule. Like, you know, some of the stuff that Matt was running through earlier, like the requiring disclosure of online ads, like that is definitely something that came to national attention in the wake of the 2012 or 2016 presidential election. But it's something that members of Congress are thinking about in a very forward looking way. Right. There was a lot of questioning about what the effect of that would be in 2018, in 2020. So I do, th- I think that in general, the fact that a lot of these things already have like bill names attached should be a signal to you that these are things that have been kind of floating out there in the ether that Democratic members have had some ideas that they've proposed in the past. And now they're kind of being brought together and given more urgency. Right. Um, So then they want to bar members of Congress from using taxpayer funds to settle sexual harassment discrimination cases. Uh, That's another that was like an in-the-news thing uh, right. f- from last year. Um, they want to give the Office of Government Ethics uh, more oversight and enforcement powers, strengthen lobbyist registration requirements, and that includes um, tightening up the Foreign Agents Registration Act. That's another Trump thing um, in the wake of uh, Michael Flynn being – Michael Flynn came under investigation by Paul Manafort, turned out to have broken a lot of FARA rules. Uh, when he got prosecuted for that, I think it turned out that a lot of people felt they were potentially vulnerable to prosecution on those grounds and that the understanding had been that those rules weren't really going to get enforced. Um, so there's been a scramble. Uh, this would formally have OGE – uh, enforcing those rules. Well, and it would also allow for civil fines to be assessed by the DOJ, which they're hoping is going to increase the incentive for DOJ to go after these cases, right. w- which like does kind of solve the non- non-prosecution problem. It's not that they are saying, oh, well, these rules weren't being enforced, so we're going to have stricter rules. It's these rules weren't being enforced, so let's make sure that prosecutors have a good reason to enforce them. Yeah. Um, and, and then a, a new ethics code for the U.S. Supreme Court uh, to ensure that all branches of government's impacted. I, I guess that's sort of a nod at Brett Kavanaugh. Although well, I also, it's, it's think also like, it's actually an ongoing problem because yeah. there's a U.S. code for judges that everybody right. else has. Right. And John Roberts has actually gone out of his way in the past to say it's OK that we aren't bound by this. Yes. Yeah. And it's also it's interesting. So I think that was something I learned while researching a lot about sexual harassment cases is that there are certain offices that do not have to abide by the law that was originally devised ironically, by Newt Gingrich in uh, 1995 regarding to kind of how the Hill and how different congressional and different federal offices handle instances of harassment. And so I think attempting to bring everyone under the same, like, I think that it may be less of a Kavanaugh reference and more of a kind of ongoing issue um, in trying to bring all kind of federal entities under the same basic code of ethics. I think there have been kind of like there's an ongoing conversation about the extent to which Supreme Court justices are connected to the rest of the political process, whether that's some of the stuff that got a lot of attention during the like Bush and early Obama years of personal relationships that justices had, whether it's some of the stuff that's just come up this week with uh, Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas, being, you know, pretty explicit conservative activist, or even like the comments that Ruth Bader Ginsburg made in 2016 about right. Donald Trump, which struck a lot of people as be as crossing a line. 
because those lines haven't been articulated, the discussion is always, is this appropriate rather than this is inappropriate? Should anything be done about it? Yes. I, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think there, there, there are some very real kinds of questions there. But in terms of so, – so that, that sums up the ethics part. Then there's a big suite of voting rights things, which I think in some ways are the – the, the heart of this initiative. Um, so they want to create a new automatic voter registration system. Um, they have early voting, same-day voter registration, online voter registration being incentivized. They want to make Election Day a federal holiday uh, so all federal employees would have the days off and there's some encouragement for private businesses to do the same. Uh, they want to um, – have uh, colleges and, and universities, a voter registration agency, so students will be able to register to vote where they're in school, uh, increase um, the sort of notification for when you change poll name, um, for when you change polling locations. They want to uh, crack down on partisan gerrymandering in federal elections. They want to crack down on voter roll purging and, and some of the tactics that are used to sort of uh, get names off that list. Um, they want to increase election security, um, including uh, there's some specific requirements around the DNI. And then they want to recruit and train more poll workers ahead of the 2020 election to cut down on sort of long lines, uh, election administration type stuff. And uh, NPR's Peter Overby made the point um, that this, in a sense, is kind of a response to the Supreme Court six years ago, basically striking down a large portion of kind of anti-discrimination provisions of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And so this, in a sense, can be read as an effort to kind of get back to where we were before Shelby. And so I think that that's an interesting way of kind of reading these, because it's not just about college students and universities. It's about the changes that have taken place in voting law that some states responded to immediately by attempting to disenfranchise a lot of voters. You know, we saw that in North Carolina. And obviously, North Carolina situation that itself went to court where a federal court said that this is like it's very clear what the intent here is. And the intent is to disenfranchise African-American voters. But it's it's interesting to see this is kind of you like you were saying, it's a forward looking bill, but it's also looking at kind of what's taken place and seeing how. Congress can react to a Supreme Court decision, but that you know hasn't been reacted to in the last six years. But they're finally starting to get to the point where this is a means of make, attempting to make up for that, even if it doesn't go anywhere. This is pretty explicit in Democratic messaging. They're talking about it as like restoring the Voting Rights Act, but it both avoids the legal question at the heart of Shelby County, which was like, is it still fair to be looking at the particular election systems of states and counties based on past patterns of discrimination. I think we've seen in the wake of Shelby County that the tactics that are being adopted are being adopted generally by government entities that are in control of particular political parties. It's not like it's not that the South is worse at this, quote unquote, than the North is. It's that like the things that are happening in Wisconsin and appear to be an advantaging Republicans are likely to be repeated in other state legislatures and county offices where Republicans are in power. So that kind of facial neutrality is both a – puts it on at least different legal grounds where the conversation we're now having is one – it's like it's a federalism argument, but it's not a – you know, 14th Amendment argument. Right. Um, but it also acknowledges that we're not in a situation anymore where we can talk about uh, disenfranchisement as being purely an artifact of Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. Disenfranchisement is now something that has just become a political, you know, 
tactic or a subject of political debate. Right. And I would think the, the, the incorporation of the college and university provision right. into this, right, is a great um, instance of the sort of deracialization yes. of vote suppression, right? That like what's happened here in a way that did not used to be the case uh, – Voting behavior has become very stratified along age lines. So just as you could have Republican elected officials trying to discourage black people from voting, not out of any particular problem with black people per se, but just because that will help Democrats win elections. Right. You've had Republicans trying to make it more difficult for college students to vote, um, not because they like hate college students, right? It's not it's not like a bigotry or a prejudice. It's just they're being practical, right? New Hampshire is a fairly closely divided, slightly bluish state. It has a large number of college students. Um, And not only are the students uh, liberal, but the faculty and the administrators of America's colleges are liberal. So if you allow colleges to be locations of voter registration, right, like the administrators will probably try to register the kids and the kids will be Democrats and Republicans. They're, they're not like prejudiced in some kind of civil rightsy sense. They just like they don't want to lose elections, so they don't like the idea of moves that would expand participation uh, into groups that are likely to vote for Democrats. And so you've seen in in a lot of states moves to both apply voter ID rules, but then be very selective in what kinds of IDs count. So you will frequently see in these packages that a gun license is a kind of ID, but a student ID is not, right? So this is Democrats pushing back on that. Automatic voter registration also reflects a nationalization of Democrats' thinking on this topic because it used to be that in swing states, you would see a very sharp partisan contestation of ballot access with Republicans generally trying to make it harder and and Democrats trying to make it easier. Uh, But in heavily blue states, right, like New York and and some of the other ones um, have a sort of machine political culture that has traditionally been very hostile to ballot access because – That's one of the things the machine knows, right? Like the machine knows that there's a six-week registration deadline and it makes sure to get its people through that kind of process, right? If you recall the 2016 Democratic primary, this was super salient because there was a lot of frustration from young people who had been – activated to vote by their enthusiasm for Bernie Sanders, realizing that they had already missed their chance to vote for Bernie Sanders several weeks in the future. Exactly. Um, And so something you've seen, right, is in in now in the New York state legislature and also in Oregon and and some other blue states, you have voting rights bills coming through, which are- New York passed it already. It was their first thing. There you go. Um, Which, you know, is probably not about beating Republicans in elections in a narrow sense. It's just about a growing national consciousness around these topics where the blue states are going to walk the walk. And now congressional Democrats are going to, I I mean, they're not going to get the Senate to agree to this, but like the idea is Democrats would have the whole country operate like a swing state that Democrats just got control over. In which you want to make it as easy for as many people as possible to vote. I actually think that this is a good place to take a break and and talk a little bit about the uh, opposition as it's already mounting to this, because I think that that really gets to the heart of the conversation about uh, expanding the franchise as a proxy for partisan warfare. Right. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. 
With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. So despite the fact that we're still very early in the current congressional session and the government was shut down for the first month anyway, so it wasn't exactly like Congress was doing a lot legislating other than trying to get the government reopened. And now Congress is trying to keep the government open primarily. Uh, Despite all that, Not to any small consternation of Nancy Pelosi and company, by the way, who were really hoping now that they actually had a majority in one house in Congress that they would get to start setting the agenda of what was being discussed in Washington. And they had set this bill up. H.R. 1 was actually they rolled it out way back in uh, at the end of November of 2018. Like they were very committed to our big thing is going to be this, you know, democracy protection thing. And It came out in the middle of a government shutdown and everyone was talking about the shutdown. But that did not stop Mitch McConnell from putting out an op-ed in The New York Times uh, during the shutdown, mind you, about how this bill was a bad idea, which was actually a really – it wasn't a thorough rebuttal in the sense that it, you know, considered and rejected all of the arguments in favor of it. But it was surprisingly broad in this how much of the bill it went after. You could expect a kind of op-ed that targeted the stuff in here about campaign finance, right? Because Republicans in the pre and especially post-Citizens United era have been very unified on the idea that campaign donations are free speech, that using groups to coordinate campaign donations is a free form of free association, that any restrictions on that are violations of First Amendment rights. You could see that. But there was also a surprising amount of explicit attack in the kind of ballot access and voting stuff. And, you know, McConnell referred to it as a Democrat Politician Protection Act, which 
To those of us who are kind of used to the state fights on voter access and voting restriction, it's not uncommon to hear state Republican legislators say Democrats just want these people to be able to vote because they'll vote for Democrats. You know, that's also something that you like hear some politicians say in terms of immigration with the possibility of legalizing unauthorized immigrants. But it's not something you hear members of Congress say explicitly very often. And it's certainly not something that you hear like the person coordinating opposition to a particular piece of legislation leading with. And so it was kind of an interesting, you know, making the subtext text uh, of this fight that's been going on about, you know, how many people should be should be able to vote easily and how easy should it be for them. And, you know, I want to I want to hear folks thoughts on whether this is normal or a good thing or whether it was better to keep it as subtext or what. I mean, I thought that something that was interesting was that the, the idea of having a holiday for Election Day, uh, Mitch McConnell's reaction was like, oh, another paid holiday for federal workers. I'm like, the shutdown ended like 40 seconds ago. It, like, it hadn't even when he wrote that. It was the 19th. It hadn't well, he, yet, right? he also gave remarks this week, I think. Oh, okay, on, gotcha. On, yeah, because yeah, he decided that it was it was worth putting mouth words to also. And so it, it, it's really interesting also because this idea, and I wrote about this a little bit when I talked about how some libertarians were viewing the shutdown as kind of like, perhaps this could be a good thing. And then a lot of libertarians say, no, it's absolutely not a good thing, even if you are a libertarian. But this idea that like federal workers and federal employees represent this large like democratic caucus in a sense, and that that alone is a reason to stand against efforts to make Election Day a national holiday. And I think that that also goes to, I remember when um, I think several weeds ago, I had a conversation with Ezra and talking about this very issue of voting and voting rights. And there's a long history within the conservative movement of recognizing that when there are lots of people voting, generally Democrats win. When not as many people vote, generally, Republicans win. Now, that's not always true, obviously. I think that there you, you could find cases to kind of butt up against the, those on both sides. But this idea that expanding the franchise is inherently an assist to Democrats is really interesting to me because that there have been Republicans, especially on the state level, who have done really well when lots of people vote, even lots of non-white people. And, you know, George W. Bush in Texas, for example. But it just seems on the federal level, there is a conceit among some conservatives that if more people vote or if it's easier to vote, that will make it easy for people they do not wish to vote to vote. And I remember this um, many moons ago when like MTV was doing kind of the rock the vote concept. Yes. And that a lot of the pushback you saw from, I think, some on the right was that like, well, you know, these people shouldn't be voting. Like if you're convinced to vote by MTV, you're not smart enough to vote or not capable of understanding what it means to vote. And, right. so and, and you're easily manipulated by right. like these bigger forces that are turning yeah. you out as their stormtroops. Exactly. So, so, so that I think is interesting about this, though, right, is that one thing is a question of sort of targeted um, roadblocks to voting, right, Um, in which you have just a kind of, you know, pure partisanship, right? I mean, it's it's dirty pool, but like people do it for a reason. Uh, But the other thing is that there is this legacy of argumentation built up over the past generation in which 
you will see, right, if you click around through, you know, National Review archives, plenty of articles, not like super serious articles that delve into policy details, but like broad kind of thematic articles saying, look, all this effort to increase voter participation like is dumb and bad, that it is not good for society to have like the marginal voter voting. That it's better to have low turnout elections in which only people who care a lot and are really informed about politics go vote. Um, there's also been like a a, a big uh, suite of books on this theme by libertarian intellectuals uh, over the past 10, 15 years, right? Um, Brian Kaplan's Myth of the Rational Voter. Um, I, I'm forgetting a George Washington professor at a book that's just called Against Democracy. Um, this has been a big theme uh, in right of like the highbrow right of center that like democracy is bad and voting participation is bad. And to be fair, they see themselves as like not speaking against like specifically democratic attempts to expand the franchise. They see it as being like super contrarian and against. But like, thematically, right? So yeah, it's like yeah, yeah, Democrats yeah. would be like beneath the specifics of the plumbing. They'd be like, look, our dream is just to get yeah. everyone to vote. Wouldn't that be great? And so there's been like a lot of pushback on that from the right, just against the idea that more civic participation is good. At the same time, you've actually seen a lot of underlying changes in the behavior of the electorate. Um, it used to be the case that African-Americans were less likely to vote than white people. Right now, African-American and white voter participation is about the same. Right. But the black population is younger, less educated um, and poorer than the white population, which means that with appropriate statistical controls, African-Americans actually vote at higher rates than white people do. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's equal, but it's it's arguably high, right? Like being black is an indicator that you are unusually politicized in America, whereas it used to be unusually depoliticized, as it still is for Latinos. Um, then among the white population, Democrats and Republicans have sort of traded constituency groups in which Democrats now do better with more educated people and worse with less educated people. So. The more educated are a higher propensity to vote group, right? This has been offset by Republicans doing better with old people and Democrats doing better with young people uh, because old people vote more, right? So inside the white population, you've had two partially countervailing trends. In the black population, you've had a big change that hasn't yet like swamped the traditional Democratic interest in boosting turnout. Uh, but you're at least seeing the potential windows of a future worldview in which it's Republicans who are um, trying to mobilize the marginal voter who is potentially a middle-aged working-class white person, right? And that it's Democrats who are counting on this loyalist block of like super online professionals or something who are, you know, getting texts all the time. Uh, that's not reflected in the voting rights proposals yet where Democrats are still very like gung-ho, everyone should vote, and Republicans are like, uh, hold your horses. But you really see it in the small donor piece, Right, that Democrats having sort of given up on the old idea of cracking down on mega donors, they're now really interested in who's the kind of person who's likely to kick $20 in to his favorite candidate, right? And that is not a rich guy, but it's a relatively um, 
upscale person, a person who is very ideological, right, who's like into ideas, who's consuming content about politics, who has a favorite politician. Who's that, probably like very networked and active online, right? Because Who's the, probably like, listening to the, this co- podcast. Yeah, probably. Because the return on investment of having people going door to door soliciting $20 donations versus being Beto O'Rourke and like sending out an email blast. Exactly. Uh, email people, people who people who would follow elected officials on Twitter, people who would listen to podcasts about politics and get into obscure Senate races, that like that kind of thing, right? Like that's Democrats making a big play to sort of increase the practical political clout of educated professionals. Right. And I think you can see that in, in the structure of the matching funds thing, the six to one ratio is based on uh, New York City which has been over the course of 20 years, took its matching from one to one up to four to one and then six to one. Um, but New York City's structure is you can you get a six to one on anything up to 175. And that's just for like mayor and city council races. Congress is now saying that, you know, you can donate 200 to any given congressional race, which is a reflection of just how insanely expensive campaigning and everything else in New York City is. But also like it is interesting to kind of see that just ported over and slightly expanded because what that means is that if you're savvy enough that you would be donating, you know, say you would be maxing out $2,700 to one candidate. If you split that into, you know, 11 donations of $200, you're literally sixfold maximizing your investment. And so it does to a certain extent, you know, the biggest added value it gives isn't to the people who are just going to give $20 to one candidate and that's it. It's the people who are interested in gaming the system and investing enough time that they are going to make the ex- the political monies they would be donating go further. Right. But what it cuts down on is the influence of some people obviously have a lot more than that money to give. And so one thing that's that's arisen in politics over the decades is the concept of the bundler of contributions, Right. And this is typically the person who will raise a bunch of $2,000 contributions for you, right, by holding the fundraiser and, like, putting in the time and working their networks. And this is the kind of thing where uh, when you talk about lobbyists having an influence in campaign finance, right, the direct financial contributions from people networked into the business community are one thing that you can look at. But in some ways, like a more significant thing is the work that they can put in on roping more big contributions together, right? And this just sort of changes the game in terms of who would be a powerful mid-tier networker, right? So that instead of agglomerating large checks, it's actually dividing up large checks that would become powerful. Because as you're saying, Tara, right, you get six to one leverage on your contribution if you give to 10 candidates rather than just one. So being able to direct people, right, it it would turn like if you think about, um, you know, the competition at Pod Save America, right, if they're able to rattle off like these are the 30 people you should donate to, right, like both the people who listen to the show and make small contributions like that are very powerful, but also the ability to sort of credibly designate Right, right. Small the people who are talking targets. to the PodSave hosts and saying, hey, I'm really interested in this state legislative race in Iowa, you know, or whatever. Right. Not, I guess not state legislative in this model. And, yeah. and I think in the in the longer run, it would promote a even more 
uh, polarized, even more ideological politics, right? Because it would really sort of tend to uh, downplay like transactional brokerage relationships and really, really, really amp up just kind of um, fandom politics, right. right? Like you think this person is awesome and so you are just like going to chip in and help them out even though it's not going to gain you access or anything practical, right? And so like that – And it, I think if the like – explicit factionalization of like right now, you know, candidate committees can donate to like, you know, if you're out of cycle, but you have money left, you know, you you are still like raising some money as a member of Congress, you can donate to other campaigns of people who are in cycle. Um, or if you, you know, have more money than you know what to do with and you're an incumbent, you know, facing your fifth reelection, but you want to make sure that you're helping people in more vulnerable seats so that you can, you know, have or maintain the majority. In a world where the better model is to make sure that people are getting the most bang for their buck on this six to one match, you could see a world where some of these semi-official things like Justice Democrats or like the collection of people who signed on to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's latest, like, you know, dear yes. colleague letter were becoming kind of more official. Like, here are the four, five, 10, 20 people you should be donating to. We are running to do these particular things. And if all of us get elected, did, you can guarantee that that's going to become the priority for our But party. so, I, I mean, I think, you know, um, Democrats, I think, probably have in mind those kind of progressive groups as the big beneficiaries of this. But I, I know from, from people uh, in Arizona that it's common there to attribute their adoption of clean elections rules to the sort of displacement of the Jeff Flake, John McCain, immigrant-friendly Chamber of Commerce yeah. style of republicanism with the more uh, amped up – Kelly Ward. Kelly Ward, Jan Brewer. Which is no, actually something I wanted to get to because I think that the idea of that – I wrote a little bit earlier this week about um, kind of the Ann Coulter theory of Trump and this idea of – Trump supporters who are transactional Trump supporters and Trump supporters who are fans of Trump. Right. And so, like, this exists on both sides. And the idea that I think that there are a lot of people on the right, and you see this among kind of never Trump people a little bit, that, okay, like, we got judges, but, you know, this hasn't really worked out as, you know, we would hope. And why isn't this showing up more among con the conservative electorate? And there was a really smart piece that I linked in my piece from National Review talking about like most Trump voters aren't transactional. Like at this, they are not like, oh no, but he, he the wall isn't getting built or the X isn't getting done or uh, Planned Parenthood is still receiving government funds. They don't think that way. And I think it's interesting that that fandom response would be just as likely to change the ideological character of the right just as much as it might be on the left. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's also some of that in the fact that Mitch McConnell chose to you know, write an op-ed, like Mitch McConnell not being known as a policy thinker, right? Also, not someone people are fans of on the right, yeah. which yeah, is no, a it's fascinating thing. Yes, fair enough. Um, but like the idea not only that this is what he would be spending his energy on, but that this is the thing that he would be like writing an op-ed taking a stand against is textbook Mitch McConnell insofar as Mitch McConnell is much better known for blocking things than for prioritizing things, yes. um, whether that's Democratic priorities or whether he's kind of playing gatekeeper within his own party. But it's also, I think, a recognition of the fact that 
fandom politics play very nicely with we can't let them do this because they're just trying to protect their side. Right. Um, you know, this is it's the flip side of the argument that you saw in the lame duck session in Wisconsin last year where they were they were paying lip service to facial neutrality. If you scratch the surface, it was very obvious who was benefiting. And so Democrats were the ones going, these things are actually designed to keep Republicans in power. And that played very well with you know, national and Wisconsin Democrats who are like, we can't let them, you know, we can't let them win this round. McConnell kind of understands that that is a playbook where he can keep his party together, even if they aren't necessarily sure what a post-Trump electorate looks like and whether expanding ballot access would in fact be a good thing for them, even if they're not totally sure what the kind of campaign finance politics of this and the strategic party politics of this are going to look like when they have a Trump base that is purely personality dominated. It's very easy to marry the transactional and fandom wings of the party into a, well, we can't let Democrats get more power. So let's take a break. And then I want to talk about how Democrats plan to do any of this. So there was an interesting Politico story that came out uh, yesterday evening, I think, or, or up this morning. And, you know, it's talking about the the filibuster. Um, and it's saying what all of my reporting indicates and all the reporting from anyone that I've seen indicates. And it's that there's no real appetite among the Senate Democratic Caucus to uh, get rid of filibusters, right? So, you know, I, I mean, we can go into the ins and outs of why that is and, and whatever. We probably will at some point in the um, next two but, years. But it's the reality. And so it means that these ideas are not compatible with a reconciliation bill. Um, that you could do with 50 votes. And a lot of the things that are kicking around in the progressive firmament, you can't do as reconciliation bills. But I could imagine a reconciliation bill version of it, right? If you told me, okay, we need to take your aspiration for Medicare for all and like cut it down to a reconciliation bill, it would come out looking very different. But you would also see the resemblance. Um, This is not like that. And it's also not like some of the other things where a lot of the Democratic presidential candidates have been talking about things like immigration or abortion in terms of legislative stuff. But in practice, they would be using the executive branch and the judicial branch, respectively, to be accomplishing those ends. And then there's a third thing that this isn't, right? Three and four. (laughs) This is not an area where I think any Democrat is going to fool themselves into thinking there's going to be a big bipartisan compromise, right? I think the idea of a bipartisan compromise on immigration is at this point dumb, but like not everyone in the Democratic Party agrees with me about this. Uh, but Democrats are not naive. Like they understand that Republicans aren't going to vote right. for Right. I mean, a compromise would essentially be the status quo, right? right? When you have generally the effort in Republican circles being exactly the other policy innovations in exactly the opposite direction. But then number four, which is also important, this package of reforms is not some like left wing wish list. The reason this is H.R. 1 is that this is what the party leadership wants their message to be about. Right. And that's why there's a real dilemma here, because there's a certain number of issues where Senators are going to play a game of, well, we can't do that because we don't have 60 votes. 
well, why don't you get rid of the filibuster? But really, they like that there's a filibuster because they don't want to do the thing, but they also don't want to be against the thing. So it just doesn't happen, right? And that's why like climate change was hard in the Obama years and will continue to be hard. There's a number of Democrats who don't want to vote for party line environmentalists measures. And so they like the 60 vote threshold that forces everything to be bipartisan. But this is the thing. Democrats would really like this stuff to be done because this is stuff that would help them win elections and that they perceive, I think, accurately that they are in a growing uh, battle, right? Like an entrenched state by state battle in which like Republicans idea is that they want to curb the fundamentals of democracy. They want to change the rules after they lose state elections. They want unlimited dark money. They want to limit people's ability to vote. Um, they want like weird Russian troll farms campaigning for them, right? So Democrats are very amped up about this, right? Like this is what they want done, but they also have adopted a series of views that make it completely inconceivable that this will happen. And I I just urge them to think harder about this, you know, that like I, I find it very frustrating when I talk to Democrats on Capitol Hill that they do not do a lot to integrate their different opinions about things with each other. You know, like it's it's challenging. I, I, I get it. Right. But like it cannot both be that the future of American democracy requires these substantial reforms and also, that we it is a critical element of our constitutional system that it requires 60 votes to pass things through the Senate unless you have a plan to significantly increase the number of states, right? Because like the Senate itself, like I agree that automatic voter registration would be like a useful pro-democracy initiative, but also allowing like 12 all-white states with no residents to completely block all legislative progress is a much more serious barrier to democracy than than the stuff that is on the table here. And you have um, – I saw like somebody characterizing – I think it was Sheldon Whitehouse characterizing D.C. statehood as like a form of fighting dirty. But like I live in D.C. It's not fighting dirty to let people here have representation in Congress. Right. I mean, if, if That's anything, just like you could fighting. make that argument on Puerto Rico where like they have their own referendum process and right. it has so far not yielded the conclusive result that they want to become a state. But it's like you just got to like – you got to fight regular, you know? Right. Um, but you you just – you have to decide what you really mean. And, and I, I get – and I, I respect political professionalism. So I understand <laughs> the um, filibuster games that a lot of senators like to play with what they perceive as sort of excessively left-wing legislation. But like this is not the legislation that they consider excessively left-wing. Right. This is the legislation they want to enact. And like they need to come up with a realistic theory of how it would become enacted because McConnell's message on this, you just want to help Democrats win. It's not a great message. You know what I mean? Like the dunk on him, like, lol, you're admitting that if people vote, uh, we're going to win. But it's a good enough message, mm -hmm. right? Like if you represent a solidly Republican state, we need to block this bill so that Republicans can keep winning elections. That's a good enough message, right? Like you are not going to face a massive backlash from voters who are four, five, six points more conservative than the average American. Uh, Especially because uh, like let's be honest, it is also true that a lot of – 
a lot of the increased urgency here, if not like I'm sure if you polled Democratic members of Congress, they'd probably all agree that some of these things are like nice to haves. But the idea of making them H.R. 1 is that they believe that otherwise they are at a disadvantage and this will make it easier for Democrats. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So it makes sense. Like it's it's kind of is a partisan power grab. I think it's also a good idea. Right. But if the people who want who think it's a good idea, like they need a partisan power grab type strategy for enacting it, right? Like you win an election once, you have a majority, you use that window of opportunity to pass these bills. By passing the bills, you shape the electorate. I don't think it's like, well, Republicans would never win again, but it's that the political system would adjust to one in which Republicans needed to probably moderate their economic message and which do a better already, job of mobilizing uh, a broad working class Which is already starting to happen. And right. you're seeing that with like sen- Senator Mike Lee and you're seeing with that with kind of the messaging of conservative populism and kind of this overall discussion among conservatives about the idea that like free market conservatism is both deeply favored by, you know, and I'm going to use the term elites even though I hate it, mm-hmm. but kind of the upper echelons of conservative thought is deeply favored by the kind of those groups, but on the ground with like real deal conservatives who, you know, or people who think of themselves as being conservatives, it's less popular. And I think that it, it's kind of this long running trope that anytime that anyone says this party will never win again or this this bill guarantees that X will never take place again, it always takes place. That's that's how history works. But I do think it's interesting that this also, you know, I'm, I've become more and more fascinated by the person who is Mitch McConnell and how he is attempting to hold, as Dara put it, these two the transactional and the fan groups together and also attempting to stay the course towards a version of conservatism that he recognizes that makes sense to him. And it's interesting also because I'm sure that if you put forward some of these ideas to not necessarily conservatives in Congress, but conservatives kind of within media or conservatives kind of within different circles, the anti-corruption message is incredibly popular. It's just how you parse it out. The idea of kind of globalist elites and the idea of the kind of like corporations have too much power. And, we, you know, conserv- like there's been a lot of talk on the right about Foxconn and how you know there have been a kind of right-leaning pundits who were calling out Foxconn a number of years ago. And this idea of kind of like there's too much corporate involvement in our government. There's too much money involved here. Normal people, and we've talked about this in the term normal, which is deeply weighted down with a lot of context. It is both a Democrat power grab and a good idea and also something that I think is in its own way deeply appealing across not party lines, not Democrat Republican lines, but across kind of ideological lines. Well, in but a sense. Can, can I ask you a question? Like, I, I think I think there's a sense in which it should be appealing, right? I, I think that it is true that this would help Democrats win elections at the margin. But I actually do also think that a a larger change is that it would make a more Tucker Carlson, less Ben Shapiro balance right. internal to the conservative right. movement. Which is – it's starting but, – but, yeah. but what – a secondary question to that is like if it came to be the case that a substantial number of conservatives – took the view that this would be good for them, like that would be interesting. I think it might be good for them depending on their level of sincerity about their own shtick. But like I don't see any evidence that they are interested in that. 
I mean, I, I think it's a question of who the them in good for them is, right? Like, sure. we just saw two years of this with the mismatched incentives that Republicans in Congress versus the Republican president had, right? Like, Republicans in Congress, like Democrats in Congress, are primarily trying to protect their own incumbency, which means in the modern Republican Party, there's a constant threat of primary challenge. And, you know, beyond that, you want to make sure that you can win a general election even toward the end of a 10-year window when your district doesn't look the same as it looked when it was done. Let me give you—I'm going to— Take a take a break from my usual stick and give a generous appraisal of a Republican. I saw I saw Marsha Blackburn at the uh, Bill Barr confirmation hearings, and she was kind of yelling at him about antitrust regulation of large technology firms. Let's let's say she takes that seriously, right? Like she's you know she's the kind of person the the Republican establishment used to be vaguely embarrassed of her um, when the idea came that she would be a senator. There was like a lot of eye rolling. Bob Corker barely endorsed her, um, but she's out there and she she wants to stand up for God and country and the right. flag and the fucking gun rights and stuff. But she is also concerned about big technology monopolies in the way that a lot of people on the left are. Assuming total good faith, these kind of reforms would make it much more likely that people like her would rise to the top of Republican politics versus people like Paul Ryan or Mitch McConnell, who at the end of the day are firmly committed to the business agenda rather than to kind of heartlandism. Right. And I I do think that if that were to happen, that would be a very interesting shift because I think that that, in my view, and obviously I, I just write about conservatism and I'm enmeshed in kind of the conversations conservatives are having among themselves, but I am not myself a conservative thought leader. Not yet, anyway. Um, but I do think that that is kind of what the groundswell is among people who are thinking about this within conservatism, of this idea of, like, there's an anti-monopoly pitch. And you see that every time, like, someone from Google or Facebook or Twitter goes to the Hill, where it's not just a, like, conservatives are being censored message. It is also a, why do you own everything, what's going on here kind of message. It's interesting because you, you, you're starting to see callbacks in some, you know, conservative writings to kind of like, you know, well, we broke up standard oil or thinking about the, the necessity of ensuring that these companies are op- operating on a fairer plane. And so I do I do firmly believe that this, the conservative populist messaging is something that it's not going to go away. And it's now starting to be picked up by members of Congress who are figuring out how to parse that out into policy. And so I do think that like something like this would create more Marsha's Blackburn and fewer Mitch's McConnell. Yeah, I mean, I... I definitely don't disagree with any of that. What I think that points us to is that it kind of used to be the assumption in a, you know, Schumpeterian, like, democracy as market kind of way that if you expanded the electorate, you would have more competition, right? Because, like, any members of any given party would have more, would need to appeal to more voters, you know, that any oh, we shouldn't let people vote because they'll vote for the other party was not just unfair, but also short-sighted because you could be trying to reach out to them. When you have broader trends in both demographic, like residential segregation uh, and political segregation, 
that's not necessarily the case because in theory, expanding the electorate to everybody is going to take up now a lot of low propensity Republicans in addition to low propensity Democrats. This is where I, I point out that uh, while everybody else focused on the kind of two paragraphs in the 2012 Republican autopsy report that said it would be a good idea to, you know, actually reach out to Latinos and pass comprehensive immigration reform so that uh, Latinos the, will, will the, vote for the, us. The 2012 GOP autopsy is something I feel like I look back on more fondly than like memories of high school. The, the thing about that report is that that was being offered as one of two alternatives. The other alternative was we need to reach out to our the low propensity voters who are on our side already, but who are not motivated to turn out to vote the white working class types, you know, that will both protect that us from out. the from the assumption that we're just for the that like we're just for plutocrats and it will also improve our electoral performance. And they dismissed that more or less out of hand because it was much harder, they thought at the time, to motivate people who weren't high propensity voters to turn out than it was to get the high propensity voters who were not firmly in one camp or the other as of 2013. I mean, obviously, what Donald Trump demonstrated is that under certain conditions, you can, in fact, have people who are not routinely voters showing up and showing up very enthusiastically, in fact. And you know, when we talk about the kind of fandom versus transactional wings of the party right now, the big question that they're not asking themselves or at least not asking themselves in open fora is how do we retain these voters after Trump? Right. Can we retain these voters after Trump? Like that was a lot of the subtext of the special elections before yep. 2018 is like, can you run on Trumpian politics and win? Or is it really just about the personality of Donald J. Trump? But the flip side of that is that they now have a way of doing things in a post-electoral expansion world that is based on exactly the same winner-take-all stuff that they're currently doing and where Republicans and Democrats are just basing their field operations on mobilization rather than targeting ads to persuade people over and over again to target two totally different populations until time immemorial. All right. That's inspiring. Yeah. <laughs> An inspiring vision of democracy that we can all take home with us over the weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I, I should make the case for persuasion some other time. I feel like I think that that would be really interesting because I feel as if that there's – this is an entirely separate conversation. I'm but saying. I'm starting to see this ongoing conversation on the right about like why aren't Democrats doing more to reach out to Trump skeptical Republicans? Yeah. And I feel like that's – I mean – that's kind of where we're getting with the the Howard Schultz push of just yeah. kind of like, what if we just went after the middle really, really hard with the assumption that the Trump skeptical Republicans who voted for Democrats in the suburbs in 2018? You, you really are launching. You don't don't derail us, Jane. Yes, I know. We got to end this podcast. We do. We're I'm not sorry. talking about Howard Schultz. We are not. It's over. That's Absolutely the end. Not. That's the end. Don't go to Starbucks. Um, <laughs> But do enjoy fine uh, podcast products uh, from from the other Vox Media Podcast Network shows. Do join us in the Weeds Facebook group uh, to uh, let us know what you are thinking about. Um, check out our sponsors, who are always lovely. And uh, thanks, of course, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. The Weeds will be back on Tuesday. 